The rest of you, Isaiah chapter number 15 in your Bibles. We're going verse by verse through the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter number 15. And 15 and 16 uh, are both relatively short in comparison to other chapters in Isaiah. We're going to look to cover both chapters tonight, chapters 15 and 16, as they both deal with the same uh, topic, the same prophecy here. And so once you've found Isaiah 15, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, Isaiah 15, and we're going to read the first three verses to get started uh, here this evening. The Bible says, The burden of Moab, uh, because in the night are of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. Because in the night cure of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. He has gone up to Bajath and to uh, Debon, the high places, to weep. Moab shall howl over Nebo and over Madiba. Uh, on all their heads shall be baldness and every beard cut off. In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloths. On the top of their houses and in their streets every one shall howl, weeping abundantly. Here Isaiah is giving the third uh, burden of the nine countries that he would address in these chapters. This is uh, country number three. We saw Babylon and Assyria. Now we're seeing Moab. And uh, that word burden means judgment. God's judgment is coming down on the unrighteousness of the ungodly. And uh, we, we see in Scripture, uh, critics of Scripture love to point out and say, well, uh, there's all sorts of genocide in the Bible, and God had countries completely wiped out, and people killed. And uh, the truth is that God waits for the iniquity of a nation to be full before He moves in and punishes. And we'll see tonight through our Bible study that Moab had reached that point where they were ready for the punishment of God because of the hypocrisy and pride of their hearts. And so the title of the Bible study this evening is this, The Burden of Moab. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Bible and passages of Scripture that we would not normally study or uh, preach from, but all Scripture is given uh, by inspiration of God and is profitable. And no doubt tonight, these chapters will be profitable to us. Prophecies that were given thousands of years ago and have already come true, validate in our hearts and minds that the Word of God is accurate and uh, trustworthy. And so, Lord, help us tonight to take little points of application and apply them to our hearts and help us to grow accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, during uh, the Bible study, we will see the nation of Moab is a nation that began, it was birthed out of great sin, uh, we'll see through the Bible study tonight that God's grace and mercy was poured out on this nation, uh, even though it had a bad start. We'll see that this nation's, we'll see the nation's refusal to submit to God because of pride. They, they would eventually come back to God, but after it was too late. And then as a result, we'll see this nation's destruction promised and then that promise fulfilled. So notice here the pattern. The nation is born out of sin. God's grace and mercy restore the nation. We see the nation eventually grow 
apathetic toward God and then refuse God because of their pride, even in being there, even in their punishment, they refuse to turn back to God until it's too late. And then God completely destroys the country uh, and because of their uh, pride and because of their arrogancy. Unfortunately, the story of Moab is played out over and over again in people's lives today. Uh, we've all seen this play out in people's lives. Some portion of this is probably played out in my life or in your life. Now, God's patience uh, cannot be exhausted with the saved. If you are born again, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, the patience of God, the grace of God is unlimited. I've heard a song sung many years ago that said, I cannot climb or fall farther than your grace can reach. And I would say that if you're saved, that is 100% true. No matter what you do, you cannot fall outside of the grace of God. If you believe that you can fall outside of the grace of God, then you believe that you can lose your salvation. All right? And so you cannot exhaust the patience of God. You cannot exhaust the grace of God on an eternal scale. Now, uh, to clarify, you can exhaust the patience of God if you're saved in regards to your life here on earth. You can reach a point where your behavior is so contrary to God and so detrimental to His kingdom that as His child, He will take you on home to heaven and heal you from the sin curse. Uh, the patience of God can be exhausted in that way. But when it comes to eternity, you cannot exhaust the patience of God if you're saved. But how about if you're lost? If you are lost, you absolutely can exhaust the patience of God. And by the way, this is just a quick um, uh, pointer, a, a quick word of advice. We should be careful about using words that are all-inclusive. How many of you have learned through marriage that words like always and never are bad ideas? Amen? You've learned that, right? Uh, you always this, you never that. Uh, here I am a pastor and I counsel marriages from time to time. And uh, I catch myself occasionally falling in the always Never trap, okay? And uh, my wife will say, always? I never? <laughs> and I uh, say, so, okay, well, let me revise that. Let me back up on that a little bit. Um, but I think we have to be careful with words like that all the time. We, we always need to be careful about using the word always, amen? Um, it's supposed to be funny. Uh, we, we need to be, but we need to be careful about how we use words like that I'll hear someone say that God never turns someone away that comes to him for salvation. And I would say that's not true. That's not true. Um, I would remind you of the New Testament. The New Testament talks about the unpardonable sin. Someone who's committed the unpardonable sin then comes to the Lord for salvation. The Lord's going to refuse that person. I would remind you of a phrase like blaspheming the Holy Ghost. Someone who's blasphemed the Holy Ghost uh, and then tries to come to God for salvation, they have crossed the deadline. Uh, they cannot be saved at that point. Uh, I would remind you of phrases like out of Romans 1, being turned over to a reprobate mind or being given over to illusions, uh, strong delusions out of Thessalonians. These are phrases that imply that someone can 
cross a deadline, and after they've crossed that deadline, uh, their repentance will no longer uh, uh, matter. They have exhausted the grace of God. They have blasphemed the Holy Ghost and His yearnings, His leadings. They, at that point, uh, have crossed that line. You say, well, Pastor, where is that line? And I would tell you, I don't know. I don't know. Only God knows where that line is. I think that line may even be different for each person. Uh, Brother Verone uh, uh, shared a story here from this pulpit, and he talked about a co-worker of his that he witnessed to regularly and uh, presented the full gospel plan multiple times and answered questions and helped this co-worker understand. And this co-worker totally uh, grasped the gospel but did not want to let go of a life of sin to be saved. And uh, there was conviction and strong conviction. And then uh, they, they split ways with work. Either she switched jobs or he switched jobs. And years later, they ran into each other at a funeral service. And uh, he approached her and she was warm and friendly with him. And they spoke with one another. And then the topic of the gospel came up. And she was now stone cold and stone-faced toward what he had to say and wanted nothing to do with it. And Brother Verone's hypothesis is that she crossed God's line and God's patience ran out with her. God's patience was exhausted with her. Uh, I have uh, uh, stood in hospital rooms and witnessed to people who were on their deathbed, hours away from dying. I remember one gentleman I gave the gospel to in such a case, and I got down to the end of the gospel, and he looked at me and kind of snarled, and he said, I, I know all this already. I heard all this decades ago. He said, I rejected my opportunity to be saved then. He said, God is not drawing me. I cannot be saved now. The man was dead just a handful of hours later. You can exhaust the patience of God if you walk all over, trample the blood of Christ, no taste of salvation, know of salvation, but do not fully experience salvation or become saved. We will see that play out in the life of Moab. I would just say here tonight that I believe independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, hard-preaching Baptist churches across America have people that sit in them that look the part, talk the part, act the part. They know all the language. They know all the lingo. But when uh, the role is called up yonder, they will not be there because they've been just playing a game. They've been the the, the chaff among the wheat. And one day, God's going to divide the tares from the wheat, and the tares will be bundled and thrown into hell. I would just say tonight, if you are not saved and you've been playing a game with God, and I'm not here to make anyone question their salvation, but deep down inside, you know whether or not you've ever actually been saved. Don't play games with God. I believe Moab played games with God, and then they repented at the last minute, and it did them no good, as we'll see here uh, as we go through the chapters. So uh, let's, uh, let's, let me briefly tell you the story of Isaiah 15 and 16, and then we'll jump into the outline here. Okay, so you have Moab, and uh, uh, Isaiah is telling them in short order. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 16, he gives them the exact time. In three years, they will be destroyed. And uh, they will, uh, he encourages them to repent from their sin, but he tells them that in a very quick and sudden manner, an army is going to come in and completely destroy their government and uh, kill many of their people, stop up their waterways, and even the 
waterways that aren't stopped up, the carnage is going to be so great that that water will become bloody and undrinkable. And then uh, a remnant of the people are going to run to the border of Judah and hide out there at the border. And they're going to call out to Judah to save them. And then there's going to be a, a method for them to be saved. They're not going to be willing to do it. And then in their pride, they're going to be destroyed. And at the very last minute in that destruction, some of them will turn to God in repentance, but it will be too little, too late. And then they will be completely and totally obliterated and wiped out as a people. So that's Isaiah 15 and 16. We'll break that down verse by verse here in a few minutes. But let's jump into the outline tonight. Let's get some background into who Moab, the nation of Moab is, okay? So let's jump in here tonight. You have a fill-in-the-blank outline there on the back of your prayer bulletin. I encourage you to take notes as we go. Number one, notice Moab's start. Moab's start. Turning your Bibles with me back to Genesis chapter number 19. Uh, back in Genesis 19, we find the beginning of the nation of Moab. And I'll quickly give you the backstory before we read the verses um, Lot had several children, and he pitched his tents towards Sodom and Gomorrah, would end up taking up residence in Sodom and Gomorrah, and would even end up becoming a ruler within the nation of um, uh, Sodom, would be part of their military, and uh, Uncle Abraham would have to come and bail them out, and they would get back there. Angels would come into the city and uh, tell uh, Lot and Mrs. Lot and their two daughters who were still virgins living at home, you need to leave because the wickedness of this land is so great. God is going to destroy it with fire and brimstone. And as you know, fire and brimstone fell. Mrs. Lot turns around and looks back, even though she's instructed not to. She's turned into a pillar of salt. And Lot and his daughters are supposed to go into a city. And they don't go into that city because they're paranoid. And so they end up in a cave. And that's where we find Lot and his two daughters at the end of Genesis 19. They're in a cave. They're paranoid. They're afraid of what else could happen to them. Look with me at verse number 29. And let's read down through the end of the chapter. Genesis 19, 29. Uh, we read a very disturbing account here. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. And Lot went up uh, out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, there's the paranoia, um, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn, now this is disturbing, but um, say with me here, the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also. And go thou in and lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And, and they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he perceived not when she lay down, nor 
when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. So this incestual relationship with his daughters causes them to be pregnant. Look at 37. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. Moab. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, uh, she also bare a son and called his name Benami, the same as the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. And that's where you get the Ammonites, which you read about throughout the Bible. So you have the Moabites and the Ammonites that came from these incestual relationships. So how did Moab, the nation of Moab, get its start? It got its start from Lot and oldest daughter sleeping together, having a child, and that young man growing up and becoming the head of a nation, the nation of Moab. And so uh, the nation did not get its start in the best manner. Now let me just say here uh, that uh, there are a lot of people in this world who come from a broken home, right? They're born uh, uh, from parents who... Uh, were together out of wedlock. Uh, there are children in this world that are born, uh, even in America today, out of incestual relationships, um, especially in rural of America. That, that seems to take place and happen. Uh, listen, it does not matter where you get your start. God still loves you and values your life. He loves you and values your life. There was a time in America where if you were born uh, from a relationship that was not a marriage, you were really looked down upon and uh, you were treated as though you were a second-class citizen. And as a culture today, that's no longer the case. In fact, it's very common uh, today. In fact, I I believe almost uh, just under 50% of children born in America today are born uh, out of um, relationships of, of a couple that are not married. And so the stigma has fallen off, but I can just tell you this from my time of counseling and spending time with, uh, with, with, with young men and young women who struggle, children that are not born from a mother and father who are married, that have a structured home, oftentimes struggle with self-image. They struggle with knowing who they are. They struggle with knowing uh, whether or not they're as valuable as someone else. Let me just say this right here, right now. Um, God does not care how you were born. Your life is just as valuable all the same. And God loves you. Do you know that no pregnancy happens without God signing off on it? And maybe your parents were in sin when you were conceived. But God allowed that conception to happen for a reason. He has a plan for your life. And we should never, ever look at our start and let that be the judge of who we become. You can be great in spite of your circumstances, but you must turn to the Lord and trust Him. Did Moab, who was a man, have the best start? No, he was born out of an ancestral relationship. Uh, and he would become a great nation. And I would just say tonight that no matter who you are and how you got your start, God has a plan for you. It is your duty to find that plan and follow it and pursue it and live inside of the love of God. Moab's start. Number two, notice Moab's significance. Moab's significance. And we're going to look at a letter A and a B here. Let me give you letter A here. Their condemnation of Israel. Turn over with me to Numbers chapter 22 numbers chapter 22 and we have the israelites they're traveling across the desert 
they're trying to get away uh, from Egypt, or they're leaving Egypt. They're heading toward their promised land, and uh, they are passing by many different countries. And lo and behold, in their travels, they're going to travel by the outskirts of Moab. Okay, so uh, Moab is an established nation. Uh, Israel is leaving uh, uh, Egypt. They're traveling to their promised land. They're they're sojourning or passing by uh, this area. Look at verse number 1 of Numbers chapter 22. The Bible says, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on the side of Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And so Moab is going to make a a pact with Midian here, and they're going to send a bunch of um, uh, dignitaries to the home of Balaam. You all, how many of you here know the story of Balaam? All right, how many of you are asleep? Balaam, uh, Balak and Balaam, right? And so they're going to go get Balaam, and they're going to bring Balaam in, and uh, Balaam's going to curse the Israelites. And uh, they send for Balaam, and I've heard people say that Balaam was a prophet. Balaam was not a prophet, okay? Balaam was into witchcraft. But Balaam knew who God was, and Balaam knew who God's people were, and Balaam knew that he was not going to be able to go and curse God's people. And so this uh, man who's involved in witchcraft is being called upon to, 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 to curse Israel from on top of a mountain. And so these dignitaries come in with great wealth and they offer it to Balaam. And Balaam says, well, let me go and talk to the God of Israel and see if he'll sign off on this. Uh, like, like that's going to happen. And so they go in and uh, he goes in and prays and God says, no way, no how, don't even think about it. And so uh, Balak sends dignitaries back a second time with even more wealth. And Balaam, a Balak, or rather Balaam goes back and he asks the Lord permission. And God sarcastically says, yeah, go ahead, see how that works out for you. And Balaam takes God's sarcastic answer is, okay, I'm going to go. And so um, you know, this is where the story of the donkey comes in, all right? They're riding on the donkey, and uh, all along the way, you have an angel that stands in the way, and then the, the donkey shoots off to the side, and he's beating his donkey, and, and then the, the, the angel gets in the way again, and uh, he just comes to a dead stop, and again, he's beating his donkey. And then they're walking across the bridge, and the angel of the Lord is standing there. Balaam cannot see him, but the donkey can, and lo and behold, the foot is crushed against the wall and Balaam starts cussing and yelling at his donkey and the donkey talks back. And uh, Balaam is so angry that he has a conversation with the donkey. Now that's what anger will do to you, isn't it? Anger will make you so irrational that if an animal starts talking to you, you just go on and converse with the animal. And what did the animal in essence say? There is an angel standing here, and I am trying to save your life. Who's the donkey now? Okay? And I'm using the PG version, okay? Who's the donkey now? Um, you're the dummy, okay? You're the dumb one here. Uh, I'm trying to save you, and you're beating me, okay? And so um, he finally makes it there, and Balak is so excited that this witch doctor is there, and he takes him up on a mountain, and uh, God takes over the mouth of Balaam. Instead of cursing the people, God speaks through Balaam and blesses the people. And Balak gets upset and says, well, let's try it again. And they set up another altar, and lo and behold, Balaam blesses the people again. And Balak's getting even more angry, and 
more upset, and they set up a third, uh, a, a, a third altar and, and, and sacrifice a bullock, and Balak blesses the people the third time. And if you're reading through the book of Numbers, it would seem that that is the end of the story, but it is not the end of the story. Balaam, in Numbers, Balaam goes home, but when we read the book of Revelation... In chapter 2, we see that Balaam would give Balak some advice to trip up the Israelites and cause them great hurt and great pain. Let's first look at chapter 25 and see the, the, how the Moabites condemned Israel, and then we'll see Balaam's role in it here shortly. Look at chapter 25 and look at verse number 1. Let's read down through verse 5 and then verse 9. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So what happened here? The Israelites are in camp, and these pretty little Moabite girls flirtatiously come in, and they're very loose sexually, and the Israelite boys start sleeping with the Moabitish women. Verse 2, And they called the people unto the sacrifice of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. Well, now that you have these Israelite boys in bed with these Moabitish girls, the Moabitish girls then say, hey, come with me to worship. Come with me to church. I'll take you to my church. You have your tabernacle. Let me take you to my temple. And now you have these Israelite boys head over heels uh, in sexual love with their new girlfriends. And they're going and they're worshiping false gods, it's not just a sexual sin. Now it's turned into a religious sin where they're committing idolatry. Verse 3, And Israel joined himself uh, unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. Uh, and uh, Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one of the men that were joined unto Baal Peor. How many men got caught up in this, uh, th- this uh, sexual fray and then worshiping this false god? Look down at verse number 9. Verse number 9. And those that died in the plague were 24,000. 20 and 4,000 men had their heads lopped off and hung up as a graphic sign of, you will not do this again. Now, Balaam was called in to curse the Israelites. He did not do it, but he had a role in what just took place here. Now, you don't find that in the book of Numbers, but turn over to the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter 2, and look with me at verse 14. Here we see um, uh, John, Jesus rather, addressing um, through John's pen, but Jesus is speaking to the seven churches uh, here. And in uh, verse number, uh, 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 let's see, verse 12, we see the church of Pergamos is being addressed. And uh, verse 13 talks about how they've done some good things. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block 
before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrificed unto idols, and then look here, and to commit fornication. Whose idea was it to send the pretty little Moabitess, loose, sensual prostitutes down into the camp? It was Balaam's idea. And Balak, the king of the Moabites, would cause 24,000 Israeli boys to lose their heads. That's more people than die in some wars. The con- their condemnation of Israel, this would be a thorn in the side of Israel as they're making their way to their promised land. But let's look at letter B, and uh, we're talking about Moab's significance here. We see their contribution to Israel. Hey, it wasn't all bad. Turn over to Ruth, the book of Ruth. If uh, you're still in Numbers, uh, Ruth is just a couple of books to the right there. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then the book of Ruth. Turn over to Ruth, chapter number 1, and look with me uh, at verse number 1. Okay, so the very beginning of uh, the book of Ruth here. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read down through verse number 5. The Bible says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Here we find Moab again. He and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons. If anyone in the church has male twins, I think you should name your kids this. Amen? Malon and Chilion. Aren't those great names? No. Carson and Michaela, if you two have twin boys, Malon, I vote for Malon and Chilion. I, I think you should go for that. And they would never get picked on in school over that. Okay, um, Malon and Chilion, okay? So those are the names, Ephrathites uh, of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. So what's going on here? There's a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. Elimelech makes a bad decision. He takes his wife and his two boys and they move to Moab, hoping that their life will get better as they're running out of food there in Bethlehem, Judah. But things didn't play out so well. Look at verse 4. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. So Malon and Chilion marry Orpah and Ruth, respectively. They dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the women, a woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So uh, you have this family of four. Uh, you have this mom, uh, you have, uh, ra- rather you have Naomi, and you have Elimelech, and you have Malon and Chilion, and they pick up from Bethlehem, Judah. They move to Moab. In short order, uh, Malon and Chilion get married, and then after the, right after they get married, Elimelech dies, and Chilion dies. So now you're left with Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And she's crushed. And understand, the culture of that day is not one of women liberation. Uh, women were very dependent on a man to pay the bills. Very, very dependent on a man. In fact, if you didn't have a male in your life to take care of you, you were, you were going to be in abject poverty without the government coming to your aid. And there's all sorts of stories in the Bible that would back up that idea. And so Naomi's just broken, right? The name Naomi means plentiful. And so she tells Orpah and Ruth, go home. Uh, don't come with me. Stay here. Go back to your, your parents. Go back to your gods. Uh, it's a waste of time for you to come with me. I've got nothing to offer you. And Orpah does. She turns and leaves. But Ruth says, listen, 
uh, I'm in. My, your God's going to become my God. Your people are going to become where you lodge. I'm going to lodge, right? I, you can't get rid of me, okay? Uh, I'm I'm like uh, uh, I'm not going anywhere. I was going to use some analogies, but none of them are appropriate. So we'll move on. Amen. Um, uh, we're gonna uh, I'm, we're gonna get back. I'm going with you. And so Ruth packs her, her her belongings. Naomi packs her belongings, and back to Bethlehem, Judah. They go, and they get back. Uh, there and they settle into a home and uh, Naomi says to the ladies as she's coming into town don't call me Naomi that means plentiful call me Mara for I am bitter the Lord has dealt bitterly with me she said and she gets they get settled into a home and uh, Ruth is like look we got to do something to pay the bills so she heads out into a field just happens upon a field and these men are, they're, the, the women are allowed to pick up the left behinds of the wheat. And there is a man who looks out and sees her and says, she's pretty. <laughs> um, hey, guys, um, accidentally on purpose, drop a little bit more in front of her. And so Ruth is going around uh, and picking up all of this extra wheat and then taking it to market and selling it. And she's making a lot of money. And she comes home to Naomi and says, look at all this wheat. And she says, where did you, how did this happen? Well, uh, Boaz related to Ruth. Turn to the end of the book of, of Ruth. And we find that Boaz is going to buy the rights to make Naomi, or rather make Ruth his wife. And carry on uh, the lineage of Ruth. Look at, uh, rather of Naomi. Look at verse number 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in under her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. The woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life. So here you have this Moabitess woman giving birth with a Israeli man, giving seed, uh, giving uh, r- rather allowing the generations to continue through Naomi and Elimelech. Fifteen. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nurser of time uh, of thine old age for thy daughter-in-law which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto him. And the woman, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a Saint Omi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, what contribution did Moab make to Israel? Well, the great grandmother of David was a Moabitess woman. David. King David, who would be the king through which Jesus would descend, Moab, while they cursed Israel, condemned Israel, also contributed Israel. By the way, while David was running for his life from King Saul, at one point he took his mother and his father and he hid them in the land. Moab was a place of refuge for his family uh, to hide. So uh, before we get in, and let's go back to Isaiah 15 and 16. Before I got into the verse by verse in Isaiah 15 and 16, I wanted to give you a history lesson 
on Moab, how it got started, uh, the role it played in the country of Israel. And now we see all these years later, uh, uh, several hundred years later rather, we see that their iniquity has reached a boiling point where God is ready to deal with them and punish them. Number one, we saw Moab's start. Number two, Moab's significance. Number three, notice Moab's slaughter. Moab's slaughter. I know that's a graphic word, but that's exactly what's going to happen. Verse 1 through 7 lays out the slaughter. Let me give you an A and a B here. An A and a B here. Letter A, notice a sudden destruction. A sudden destruction. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 15. Burden or judgment of Moab, because in the night, we see the, 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 the quickness of it, the suddenness of it. In the night, or we see Moab's supplication. Moab's supplication. So you have a remnant of people who are broken. And they, uh, they, they are going to ask for help. Look at chapter 15 and look at verse number 8. It says here, for the cry, we'll read down through uh, letter A. Let me give you letter A and letter B here. Letter A, notice their request for help. Their request for help. Look at verse 8. We see now that they have been punished and Assyria has come through and slaughtered them. By the way, uh, Isaiah didn't say it was going to be Assyria, but lo and behold, it, it happened to be Assyria. History tells us. So verse 8 tells us, for the cry is gone uh, round about. Um, yeah, for the cry is gone round about the borders of Moab. Why? Because the people have been punished. They flee to the borders of Moab where Moab borders Israel. The howling, therefore, unto Egeleum, and the howling, therefore, unto uh, Beer uh, Elam. For the waters of demons shall be full of blood, and I will bring more upon demon, lions upon him that escapeth of Moab, and upon the remnant of the land. So these people have escaped to the border, and they're crying out to Israel for help. Now, watch this. Assyria would... Would, would do great damage to Judah. They would totally destroy Israel. The ten northern tribes, they would come in and they would do damage to Judah uh, outside of Jerusalem, but they were never able to take over Jerusalem. Assyria was never able to conquer Jerusalem. And so you have these people here hiding, and they're crying out to Judah, and they're asking for help. They're crying out for uh, great help. And then Isaiah says, okay... If we're going to help you, then there's going to be some requirements for that help. Letter B, notice their requirements for help. You want to cry out for help? Okay, you've gotten into a bad spot. Let me show you how you can be helped. Look at chapter 16 in verse 1, and a plan is laid out for them to be restored, for them to be brought into Judah and given refuge. Verse 1, Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. You know why? We know from the Old Testament, studying the Old Testament, that sending animals was a tribute. Now, notice the significance here. And we find Jesus Christ in the story. Not just any animal is requested. A lamb is requested. They're asked to send a lamb to Jerusalem. A spotless lamb. Would they do it? Well, we'll see in a moment. No, they wouldn't do it. But in order for them to get the help of Israel, the help of Israel's God, 
They needed to worship and believe in Israel's God. Look at verse 2. For it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment. Make thy shadows as the night in the midst of the noonday. Hide the outcast. Berate not him that wandereth. Let mine outcast dwell with thee. Moab, be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. Now look here how Isaiah describes the Moabites who are hiding and crying for help. For the extortioner is at an end. The spoiler ceaseth. The oppressor are consumed out of the land. And then we get a a, a prophecy about Jesus during the millennial reign. And in mercy shall the throne be established. And he, speaking of Jesus, King Jesus, shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. What's Isaiah telling these refugees on the border of Judah and Moab who have been uh, punished and their country has been destroyed? He's saying to them, if you want the help of Judah, then you must worship the God of Judah. Now, this is the most important point I'm going to make the whole Bible study. Okay, listen. Many people, when they get themselves into a bad spot, they want the help of God without truly worshiping God. They want God to step in in their time of trouble and deliver them from their problems. But they're not willing to devote their life to God. They're not willing to truly become a Christian and live for God. How many times have, we, have you met people while you're out witnessing for the Lord or talking to a co-worker and they say, oh, will God help me out of this bad spot? Oh, will God help me out of this, bad, this, this situation over here? And I was in a bad situation. I cried out to the Lord and He was there for me while they're living a life that is completely devoid of God and worshiping God. Listen, listen now. If you're going to cry out to God for help, Boy, you better make sure you're living a life that's devoted to God. Did Moab do that? No. Moab was given a course, given a path uh, where they could be welcomed into Judah, send a lamb. Did they do that? They did not. Number five, notice Moab's stumbling block. Moab's stumbling block. We're going to finish up the Bible study here quickly. Let me give you an A, B, and a C here. Notice letter A, their deep pride. Their deep pride. Look at verse number six. Right on the heels of being told how to do it. Verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He, as a nation, is a very proud and of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Therefore shall Moab howl uh, for Moab. Everyone shall howl for the foundations of Kirharaseth. Shall ye mourn? Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the lords of the heathen, have broken down the principal plants. Therefore they are come even unto Jazer. They, uh, they uh, wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the seas. Uh, uh, Isaiah says, listen, if you want in, send a lamb. If you want in, uh, uh, give, give obeisance to the fact that you believe in the God of Israel. But they did not. Why? Because their deep pride was their stumbling block. I've met so many people who have been taught right and told right. They wander off into sin and they come back and they are giving lip service to wanting help when they're told how to get the help. Humility and repentance. Do they do it? No. 
They're steeped in pride. And their pride will be their end. Letter B, notice, their delayed penance. Penance. Their delayed penance or repentance. Look at chapter 16 and verse 12. We're down to the last couple of verses here. We're almost done. And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he shall come to the sanctuary to pray, but he shall not prevail. Once they've exhausted every option, once they've stretched themselves out as a, as a fruit vine, once they have done everything they can do and none of that has worked, then they'll come running in, ready for penitence. And will it work? No. Letter C, we see their downfall promised. Their downfall promised. Look at verse 13 and 14. This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord hath spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of an hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be contemned with all that great multitude, and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. And so God through Isaiah, not only predicted their fall, but predicted a timeline in which they would fall. And lo and behold, within three years, the nation was destroyed. The nation of Moab was destroyed. Why? Because when God says something, He keeps His word. Now, what can we take away from this tonight? Okay, Other than just having a deeper understanding of Isaiah 15 and 16, here's what we can take away from this. Let's keep ourselves holy. Let's keep ourselves pure. Let's walk with God. And let's make sure our relationship is not surface and shallow. Every day we need to be walking with God. Is it a battle? Of course it's a battle. But it's a battle worth having. And when pride bows up in our heart, especially when we're in the wrong and it's being pointed out, boy, let's come to the Lord with the sacrifice of praise and humility. And let's worship Him in spirit and truth. And let's trust Him. And in that, God will restore us and bring us back. Amen? Let's stand to be dismissed with a word of prayer. Thank you for being faithful tonight to church. I hope that you have a better understanding of Isaiah 15 and 16 and that you'll go forth and you'll put these things into practice. Amen? God bless you. Thank you for being out tonight.